You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 204, The British Capture Savannah. Now, last week, I talked about the British capture of St. Lucia in the West Indies and how the British had intentionally put the war out of New York on the back burner. Sir Henry Clinton remained in command in New York, but many thousands of his soldiers had been sent elsewhere in the empire. This ended large-scale British operations in the north. The British were concerned about fighting the French all over their empire. The North American colonies in rebellion were no longer the highest priority for the administration in London. That said, Britain had not given up on the colonies entirely. In addition to the Caribbean islands, the British still hoped to restore authority in some of the southern colonies. The British had never lost control of East and West Florida, although only a few hundred white colonists lived in those colonies. I've covered the disputes between British-controlled East Florida and Patriot-controlled Georgia in earlier episodes. In all of those skirmishes, the total combatants amounted to a few hundred men. These were both relatively unpopulated colonies. Excluding Native Americans, all of Georgia had a population of around 30,000, and almost half of that population was enslaved people of African descent. So it was reasonable for the British leadership to assume that with a few thousand regulars, they should be able to reclaim Georgia for crown rule. Low population aside, the ministry believed that there was a much larger loyalist population in the southern colonies, just waiting for the army to show the flag and they would rally. To listeners of this podcast, that may sound a bit like Charlie Brown with the football. We've already been through New England, where locals said, deploy the army and the loyalists will churn out. That did not happen. Next, they went to New York and the Mid-Atlantic states, where locals assured them that deploy the army and the loyalists will turn out. That, again, did not happen. Now, they were being told that the same failed game plan would work in the southern colonies. Now, there was some reason for British leaders to be hopeful in the South. Anglicans made up a larger proportion of the southern colonies, and Anglicans tended to be loyalists. These colonies were also made up of large plantation owners with a fair amount of wealth and a lot to lose in a revolution. Large landowners tended to appreciate the stability of a monarchy and did not usually want to overthrow the whole system. Sure, sometimes even nobles in England might see a chance to topple a king and take it, but most wealthy landowners were survivors who wanted to protect their family wealth rather than charging off on some idealistic crusade. With that in mind, leaders in London hoped that the southern colonies would be more amenable to returning to crown authority when pushed. This would provide the British with control of some of the wealthiest colonies in North America and would also provide support for the more valuable island colonies in the West Indies. Having secured the southern colonies, once the war with France ended, they could think about retaking the Mid-Atlantic and New England colonies. The Deep South and West Indies colonies provided another lure, warm winters. Typically, 
armies fighting up north had to go into winter quarters during the coldest months. Many of these regiments could be redeployed to the south for winter campaigns. That was why the British removed so many soldiers from New York in October or November, shipping them to the south. The British also looked at the American defenses in the south and figured they had a much better chance of victory there based on the military status in that region. Southern states had significant militia, but had concerns about sending large numbers of fighting men off on campaigns. These states had very large slave populations. The main reason slaves did not rise up against their masters was the fear of military repression by the militia. If the militia marched off to war, slaves might take that opportunity, especially if they had British backing. In part because of that concern, and probably also because of some general arrogance, the state governors did not seem to have a good relationship with the Continental Army. I've discussed some of this in prior episodes. Major General Robert Howe, no relation to the British Howes, commanded the Continentals in the South. Howe was, in fact, the only major general from a state south of Virginia. The only other major general was William Moultrie, who did not receive his commission until late 1782, about a year after Yorktown, and about a year before the Continental Army disbanded. Moultrie was, in fact, the very last major general commissioned in the Continental Army. But getting back to General Howe, I gave some more background on him in episode 191, but to recap, he was from a wealthy North Carolina family and had been an active patriot before the war. He and fellow North Carolinian James Moore received continental commissions in early 1776 as the war prepared to expand beyond New England. When General Moore died in 1777, Howe became the senior officer south of Virginia and had received a promotion to Major General in late 1777. Howe had briefly engaged in some military actions in Virginia in 1775 as the colonists were pushing out Lord Dunmore. But since his commission in the Continental Army, his responsibilities were exclusively to the South. He had participated in the defense of Charleston, South Carolina, in late summer 1776 with General Charles Lee. When Lee moved north again, General Moore took command of the Southern Department, but Moore got sick and died in April 1777, leaving the Southern Department to General Howe. Now, since that time, Howe's main focus was keeping the Loyalist raiders from East Florida from threatening the Southern Georgia frontier. Most of his time, though, was fighting with the Southern governors, all of whom wanted more soldiers in their states and who did not want to give the Continentals any say over how the state militia was being used. I also noted back in episode 191 that General Howe even fought a duel with General Christopher Gadsden. Both men survived, but Gadsden resigned his Continental Commission and took up political office in South Carolina, where he remained a determined enemy of General Howe. The failure of the Florida expedition in the summer of 1778 resulted in even more squabbling between General Howe and the Southern governors. The Continental Congress finally got involved and in September ordered that General Benjamin Lincoln take the Southern command. General Howe would be sent north to a different command. 
Now recall that Lincoln had been seriously wounded a year earlier near Saratoga and had been recovering from his terrible leg injury. During his recuperation, Lincoln seriously considered resigning. Aside from his injury, one reason that General Lincoln was considering resigning was that General Benedict Arnold had received retroactive seniority, making Arnold more senior to Lincoln and several of the other newer major generals. Lincoln took this as disrespectful of his commission. In the end, though, he let that blow over and returned to duty. He had only rejoined the Army in August in New Jersey. In late September, Congress ordered Lincoln to take the Southern Command. He received those orders in early October. Lincoln departed the Army within a few days, but took two months to reach his new command in Charleston, South Carolina. Along the way, Lincoln spent some time in Philadelphia, conferring with members of Congress, then dallied in Williamsburg, Virginia, for more discussions. While in Williamsburg, a fall re-injured his wounded leg, causing a few more weeks of delay. By late November, he had made it to Kingston, North Carolina, where he paused once again for more discussions with the governor. He finally arrived in Charleston on December 4th. General Howe had received orders of his recall, but until Lincoln arrived, Howe remained in command. On November 18th, while Lincoln was still in North Carolina, Howe marched out of Charleston with 550 Continental soldiers after receiving word that the British planned another attack in Georgia. Howe was in Savannah by the time Lincoln arrived in Charleston. The men exchanged letters, and Lincoln agreed that Howe should remain with the forces at Savannah to meet this attack. The British threat came from an expedition sent from New York City. Sir Henry Clinton had deployed a force of mostly regulars to capture Georgia. He had placed the expedition under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Archibald Campbell. As you might guess from the last name, Campbell was from Scotland. He was the second son of a Scottish noble. As is the common fate of non-firstborn sons, Campbell seemed bound for a life in the military. Unlike many nobles, Campbell did not take a commission as a child in order to build up early seniority. Instead, he attended the University of Glasgow and then went to the new Royal Academy at Woolwich to study engineering. He received a commission as an artillery officer and served in the Seven Years' War. Campbell served at the Siege of Quebec under General Wolfe and was wounded there. He returned home to recuperate. He then deployed on several raids along the French coast, as well as a tour in the West Indies, building a good military reputation and rising in rank along the way. At the end of the Seven Years' War, Campbell was still in his 20s and still trying to figure out what he wanted to do with his life. In 1768, he moved to India, taking a position as chief engineer of the British East India Company at Bengal. There, Campbell focused on building fortifications for the local garrison. He also found time for some private business. He became an investor in the establishment of a private dockyard in Calcutta that did pretty well for itself, and eventually selling it to the government. He also established a very profitable silk trade. After making a considerable fortune in only a few years, Campbell returned home to Scotland. He purchased several large estates, even buying his own island. 
1774, he ran for and won a seat in the House of Commons. He didn't remain in Parliament very long. In 1775, as the rebellion in America heated up, Campbell raised a regiment of regulars in Scotland to go fight for the king in America. He turned over his seat in Parliament to his older brother and boarded a ship with his new regiment, the 71st Regiment of Highlanders, headed for America. The regiment sailed aboard six smaller ships bound for Boston. Along the way, the small fleet encountered a violent storm, causing two of the ships to get lost and eventually end up in New York. The other ships finally made it to Boston in June after a difficult journey. As the ships approached Boston Harbor, they fought with several American privateer ships just outside the harbor. They forced their way past those ships and into Boston Harbor, prepared to join General Howe's army. Unfortunately for Campbell and his men, they had not received word that General Howe had sailed for Halifax several months earlier and that Boston was under the command of the Continental Army. Lieutenant Colonel Campbell became prisoner of war Campbell the moment he set foot in America. Immediately following his capture, Campbell received rather good treatment. The enemy allowed him to keep his sidearm and gave him parole. He and several of his officers ended up in Reading, Massachusetts, with 22 servants to care for them. The only real disagreement was that the locals did not want to pay for all these servants for the prisoner. Campbell had to dismiss a few of them and pick up the tab for the rest. Over time, though, his treatment got worse. In December, after Campbell had been prisoner for about six months, the British captured Continental General Charles Lee in northern New Jersey. The Continental Congress offered to exchange Campbell and five Hessian officers captured at Trenton for the return of General Lee. The British refused the exchange and were seriously considering executing Lee as a deserter and traitor to the crown. General Washington then informed General Howe that the Americans would treat Campbell and the other Hessian officers offered in exchange in the same manner the British treated General Lee. Campbell found his parole revoked and he was locked up in a conquered jail, under the control of the sheriff. Campbell wrote to Generals Washington and Howe, complaining of his treatment, and after a few weeks was permitted to take a room in a nearby tavern. A few months later, after the American received word that the British had given General Lee better quarters, they permitted Campbell to rent a small country home near Concord. Finally, in May 1778, the Americans exchanged Campbell for Ethan Allen, which I discussed back in episode 179. Campbell returned to New York just before the main army under General Clinton arrived after the Philadelphia evacuation. As Clinton followed his orders from London to send large portions of his army to other parts of the empire, he gave Campbell his first command in America. Campbell would take his regiment of Highlanders, along with several other regiments to restore crown rule in Georgia. In total, Campbell commanded about 3,100 men, including loyalists. Campbell boasted that he would be the first British officer to remove a star and a stripe from the new American flag. His fleet departed Sandy Hook on November 27th, headed for Georgia. In addition to Campbell's force from New York, General Clinton had sent word to St. Augustine for the garrison there to march north and join Campbell in taking their first target, Savannah. The loyalist Thomas Burntfoot Brown 
had raided into Georgia at least four times prior to this attack. Each time, his men were driven back into East Florida. But in each of these raids, Brown only had a few hundred men, mostly local loyalists. With the arrival of 3,000 regulars, that would change the balance of power entirely. Florida's garrison, which contained not only Brown's loyalists, but also a regiment of regulars under General Augustine Prevost. Campbell's fleet arrived at the mouth of the Savannah River on December 23rd. He had planned to wait for General Prevost to arrive from East Florida. However, when he saw the American defenses, he decided that waiting could only risk changing what looked like an easy victory. As had been the case for American General Robert Howe's entire command, his Continentals got no help from the Georgia militia. Georgia Governor John Houston had refused to cooperate with General Howe six months earlier, leading to the disaster in the last fight with Florida loyalists. With General Howe back in the state, Governor Houston seemed no more interested in any military cooperation. He refused to give Howe any authority to command his militia. Howe had only the 550 Continentals he had brought with him from South Carolina and another 200 Continentals who were already in the state. The Americans spotted the British fleet gathering in the waters just outside Savannah. Governor Houston relented and finally gave permission for a mere 100 local militia to cooperate with the Continental Army. That left General Howe with about 850 defenders to fight off an attacking force of 3,100 regulars, Hessians, and Loyalists. Howe convened a council of war to discuss their options. Given the lopsided numbers, one option was to simply abandon Savannah and protect the Continental forces to fight another day. The other was to stand and fight. The council opted to fight, hoping that they could hold out long enough before General Lincoln could arrive with reinforcements. On the morning of December 29th, Campbell landed his British forces at Girardeau's plantation, about two miles south of Savannah. When General Howe received intelligence that the British had begun bringing soldiers to shore, he deployed two companies of Continentals to contest the landing. The Americans took a position on the heights above the beach and began firing on the British. Campbell, who had only begun a landing that would take several hours, deployed two companies of Highlanders to retake the heights. The British charged up the hill at the American line. The Continentals fired a volley at about 100 yards, killing four of the attackers and wounding five others. The volley did not slow the British attack, which continued at the Americans with fixed bayonets, not even stopping to return fire. Rather than engage in hand-to-hand, -hand, the Americans fled the field, giving control of the heights to the British. With the harassing fire gone, Campbell continued his landing, getting all the men ashore by about noon. With his forces ready, he began to march on Savannah at that time. General Howe planned a final stand about a half mile just south of town. The Continentals had chosen this area with the expectation that the geography would reduce the ability of the British to make use of their numerical advantage. Howe deployed his entire force into a V-shape with the two lines closing in as the attackers moved forward. On each side of the lines was a swampy area that prevented the enemy from trying to flank the defensive lines. 
The Continentals also deployed four cannons to back up the infantry lines and used light infantry to protect both flanks. Howe's left line in the V was comprised of Georgia Continentals and militia under Samuel Elbert. The right line included the South Carolina Continentals he had brought from Charleston, along with a few militia under Isaac Huger and William Thompson. It was a pretty good defensive position, except for one problem. After the British arrived at around 2 p.m., a local slave informed Colonel Campbell that there was a path that would lead through the swamp and allow the British to get behind the American right flank undetected. Campbell deployed a force of 350 light infantry regulars and 250 loyalists to march through the path in the swamp, guided by the slave as the rest of his regulars and Hessians formed into lines in front of the Americans. With the defending Americans focused on the main attack force, the other flanking force was able to make its way through the swamp undetected. The British opened fire on the Americans from both the front and rear at the same time. The entire right side of the American defensive line found itself surrounded almost immediately and surrendered. Any men who did not surrender right away were bayoneted to death. The left line also fled in a panic back toward Savannah. A rearguard action allowed some men to escape, but many others drowned trying to get across a creek. The result was a pretty dramatic and one-sided British victory. Aside from the nine casualties at the beach, the British suffered only three killed and 12 wounded at the final stand. The Americans suffered 83 killed, 11 wounded, and 453 captured. Only about 300 managed to escape. The British took control of Savannah that same day without any further resistance. A short time later, the Florida contingent arrived and General Prevost took command of Savannah. The British used Savannah as only a starting point to take back the entire colony of Georgia over the next few months. But those future offensives will have to be the topic of a future episode. Next week, as we enter 1779, I want to return to Philadelphia to catch up on what the Continental Congress is doing. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. My thanks, as always, to Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, Lewis White, and Robert Hunter. Thanks also to Robert Morris Circle supporter, Lee Seam. 
I'm also pleased to welcome two new Privy Council members who joined last month, Donovan Colt-Torp and Rob Payne, who upgraded from Minuteman. Also welcome to new standard bearers, Brandon Carr and Philip McCoy. Each of you can look forward to getting the first of your monthly flag magnets this month. On the day I release this episode, which, by the way, is every Sunday morning, I'm also going to be releasing three new t-shirt designs to the American Revolution podcast storefront on TeePublic. One is an alteration of a shirt I already have, the popular Join or Die logo. This one has the American Revolution podcast logo also in the corner of the shirt. The second one is the famous 13-star Hopkinson flag, which is believed to be the first design approved by Congress, also with the American Revolution podcast logo. And the third one is a special one for Delaware fans. It is the Danzy flag. That is the flag used by the Delaware militia during the 1777 Philadelphia campaign. Personally, I love these more obscure designs because it often engages people to ask questions about what they are, and it lets you show off your knowledge about the revolution. The new designs should be on sale for the first three days, so if you're listening to this on one of those first days of release, you may want to go check out the new designs while they're still 30% off. If there are any new designs or variations or changes on existing designs that you'd like to see, just let me know. When I first opened my T Public storefront a few weeks ago, I put up a mix of flags. Some of them have the American Revolution podcast. Some of them just have the original American Revolution logo without any reference to the podcast. So I'm kind of curious to see which people prefer. I do hope to continue adding designs over the coming weeks and months, and I may start taking away some of the designs that don't seem to be very interesting to people. But if you're interested in checking out what I have, just go to tpublic.com, that's T-E-E-Public.com, and look for American Revolution Podcasts. If you're having trouble finding my storefront, there's a direct link to it on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. Also, a reminder that the American Revolution Podcast is holding a live meetup on June 26th this year, 2021. It will take place in Old Town, Philadelphia, near Independence Hall. You are welcome to join me for lunch, which will probably take place at the Bourse around noon. Then at 1.30, we will meet up at Washington Square at the Tomb of the Unknown Revolutionary War Soldier. This meetup, again, is completely free. It's just a casual get-together to talk. If you're interested in attending, please email me at mtroy.history at gmail.com. And if you didn't catch that email address, you can find it on my website at amrevpodcast.com. This week marks the beginning of the Southern Campaign that dominates the last three years of the Revolutionary War. Up until this time, the British had focused almost exclusively on the Northern colonies, first in New England and then the Mid-Atlantic states. The thinking of the British leadership was to go after the root of the rebellion and the rest would just collapse. As I've said, by this time with the entry of France into the war, the British had already implicitly admitted defeat. They were not going to crush this rebellion, at least not anytime soon. They needed to focus on the larger war, so the Southern Campaign was about damage control. London was essentially writing off the Northern colonies for now, but still hoped there was enough support in the Southern colonies to return them to crown rule. 
the capture of Savannah was really the first attempt to do this, other than the ill-fated attempt in early 1776 when General Henry Clinton tried to capture an island in Charleston Harbor. If the British had prioritized the South earlier in the war, they probably would have found much greater Loyalist support. But by the end of 1778, most Loyalists had been living under Patriot control for two or three years. Most people were understandably reluctant to risk their lives and property for a British authority that had not shown much commitment to holding the region thus far. At the same time, Patriots had left the South without many defenses. They also had prioritized the war in the North. That is why the Southern Continentals could never get enough support to overrun East Florida. That and the lack of cooperation by the Southern governors made the Southern military operations a disaster. When the British did deploy a significant force, as we saw at Savannah this week, the Americans had no real defense. As I mentioned in the main show, Colonel Campbell was supposed to wait for reinforcements from Florida before attacking, but saw the defenses were so weak he didn't want to give the enemy any time to improve them. When General Augustine Prevost arrives from East Florida a little later, and we'll cover that in a future episode, there would be a bit of a tiff between the two officers. Prevost was disappointed that Campbell got the glory of taking Savannah. Even so, you can't really criticize victory, and Prevost had to move on after Campbell's success. If you want to read more about the Southern Campaign, my book recommendation this week is The Southern Strategy, Britain's Conquest of South Carolina and Georgia, 1775-1780, by David K. Wilson. Although the title suggests it covers six years of war, the period from 1775 to 1778 covers just a few pages of introduction in the book since not much really happened in those colonies during those years. The book really takes off with the capture of Savannah at the end of 1778 and focuses on the next year and a half, through the Siege of Charleston and the Waxhaws Massacre in May 1780. I really like the book's focus on that period of the war that is not usually emphasized in histories of the war overall. The book itself is a little under 300 pages, not counting notes and index. It was nominated for several awards when it was first published in 2005. The author, David Wilson, is listed as an independent scholar, a former teacher who works in advertising. As I said, it gives good coverage not only of Savannah, but the next year and a half of military campaigning, so I'm likely to use this book as a reference for many episodes to come. I often like to give a good primary resource for my online recommendation, and Colonel Campbell kept a journal of his time in Georgia. There's a 1981 reprint of it, but even the reprint's impossible to find. It does not appear to be available anywhere online, so as much as I'd like to recommend that, I'm going to recommend something else. My recommendation is Sir Archibald Campbell of Inverneal, sometime prisoner of war in the jail at Concord, Massachusetts, by Charles H. Walcott. This is a booklet that was published in 1899. It's only about 60 pages long, and it talks about the life of Colonel Campbell, the British leader who captured Savannah. Now, this book is more about his life overall, 
And the New England author actually focuses mostly on Campbell's years in a New England jail. His capture of Savannah only covers a page or two. I get the impression that the booklet was mostly written because the author was curious about local stories he heard growing up about this British prisoner. Even so, I found it an interesting read. As always, you can search for it on archive.org, or I have a direct link on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. <laughs>